You know, join with me. I want to pray the words of that song. Lord, we believe everything that you say you are. We believe we have seen your unchanging heart. Lord, in the good things and in the hardest part, God, we believe and we will follow you. Lord, it's, e- it's maybe easy for us to say that. It's another thing for us to live it. Sometimes, Lord, in the hardest part, it's attempting, tempting to doubt your goodness and what we've seen. And Lord, I just pray that you would speak to us. I think all of us are in need of a fresh encounter with you. We're in the hardest part, some of us. We're struggling. It's tough. And God, we need you. We need you to speak to us. We don't want to just do a talk here. I don't want to do a little sermon. We want an encounter with the living God. So speak to us through your Bible. Make your presence and voice crystal clear. And may we walk away in a few minutes having had a face-to-face, transformational, very necessary encounter with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, welcome to the Compass Church. I'm sure we have visitors here, and I just want you to know that we are glad you are here and hope you are blessed by your time with us and that you'll come back again and again and be a part of our church family. You know, I, I wanted to share a story. I, my, my brother-in-law, that would be my wife's brother, Steve, he received a free Caribbean cruise. How does that sound to you about now? Free Caribbean cruise? Huh? It was really interesting how it came about. He, he had a new friend, this gal who was very wealthy, and she said, I am paying for a charter. She goes, I've chartered a luxury super yacht. And she said, I'm inviting some friends. She said, I have a space. I'd love to invite you, Steve. And Steve is single, and he didn't have a job that would prohibit it. He's got a flexible job. And so he said, yeah, I'll come, I'll come. And so I drove him to O'Hare. And I, as I hugged him on the curb of departures, I said, dude, I am jealous of you. You, I can't believe this. This is a dream come true. And he's like, I know, I know, see ya. So he flew from O'Hare <laughs> to Miami, from Miami to Antigua. Have you heard of Antigua, that island? And it was there that he came to this super yacht, and the captain greeted him and told him, well, uh, your host who's paying for it all and the other friends aren't arriving until tomorrow. There they called and said they're going to be late, and so we're here to serve you. Ready for this? So there are five guests. Steve was the only one on the board that night. Six staff serving. <laughs> captain, co-captain, cook, servers. And they sat Steve by himself at this white tablecloth, the luxury table, and they were here to serve. Steve was like, ring, ring, ring. I'll take a little more of that, please. You know, it was unbelievable. Here's a picture of the boat. It is, uh, uh, I don't know if you can tell from this picture, but a guy, this is a man standing here at the tip of it. So it is 132 feet long. It's a massive, brand new, $15 million sailboat. Huh? On the inside, you'll see there's just uh, exotic hardwoods lining. It's like a floating piece of art. The thing is so beautiful. And when Steve went to bed that night, here's a picture of his room that he had all to himself. Unbelievable, huh? He was living the good life. Well, the next morning, these other blessed friends, three of them, were there, and Steve had a chance to meet the people that he was going to be enjoying this island hopping adventure with. 
And they all said, have any of you heard from our host? She's the only one who's not here yet. And at that very moment, Steve got a text from her saying, due to passport challenges, I've been advised not to join you, and so I won't be coming. And Steve's like, that's where she's an immigrant from Europe somewhere, and um, someone had told her that Antigua being another country, may, she may have trouble getting back into the States, and so she didn't want to risk anything. And so the captain said, well, all we're waiting for is the host. And Steve said, well, actually, she texted, and he said, she's not joining us. He said, well, that's a problem. And he said, the captain said, she has not paid the bill yet. <laughs> Steve started texting, you have not paid the bill yet, you know, and... And when Steve texted her that information, uh, she ceased responding to Steve's texts. And the captain said, she has not been responding to our phone calls or our emails. Folks, he says, we've got a problem. The captain had been so nice, but all niceties were gone now. And he sat these four guests down at this fancy table, and he said, people, this boat is very expensive, and every week counts. We cannot afford to not be paid for one of the weeks of this boat. He looked at them, and he goes, you four are responsible for the payments of this. And they said, well, how, how, how much is it? $300,000. Prime week of the vacation season, and this luxurious boat with that staff, it was unbelievable. And so he divided it up, and he said, that'll be 75000 from each one of you. Well, they are, none of them were, are people of great means, and so they just choked on their shrimp cocktail, you know, and said, uh, we, we, we have $55, you know, I can't pay that. Some people have asked me, is this a true story, folks? I'm telling you this happened, just like I'm telling it. And uh, they said, we can't pay. And the captain got very firm, and he said, well, then you need to get off this boat right away, but you are not to get off this island. He says, we are going to seize your passports. When you get on the boat, they, you give the captain the passports. He puts them in a safe. He goes, we're going to seize your passports and hold them until this bill is paid. And he said, we may, he goes, I, I need to talk to the president of this company, but we may have to arrest you for fraud and put you in an Antigua jail cell. Well, my brother-in-law is freaking out. He thankfully found a little hotel on the island that had a room available and he's calling a lawyer here in the States, and he's like, I'm being held kidnapped on this island until this bill is paid. And finally, uh, it was clarified that none of these four had signed the contract, only the gal who was supposed to pay, and so none of them were legally liable because they hadn't signed anything. And so eventually, at the end of the week, they were given their passports back, and they were able to return to the country. What a nightmare, huh? I mean, here this dream vacation turned and became uh, not a, dr a dream, but a nightmare-style dream. And uh, it's interesting. Uh, Steve said that when the four of them saw this friend, they were really ticked off at this friend, as you can imagine. You know, I can't believe you did this to us. She, she played it down. She's like, sorry that that cruise thing didn't exactly work out. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, tell me about it. They were very upset at this woman for inviting them, getting them to this obscure location and abandoning them in a world of hurt as a result. It's remarkably similar to our passage. We got a group of people called the Israelites on an all-expense all paid trip to Mount Sinai, 
and the host abandons them. They get to Mount Sinai, and Moses, the one who's brought them there with great promises of the most amazing experience of their life, suddenly is gone. He goes up to the top of Mount Sinai, and he doesn't come back. And these people are ticked that they find themselves in this desolate desert with no hosts, you know, and what are we going to do now? Let me read. The series, the series again, is called Apex. It's all about the pinnacle of life. Life at its best is found in friendship with God. And it's found at the pinnacle of Mount Sinai, the place of friendship with God. We're studying Moses and the Israelites and their time at Mount Sinai, seeking to learn what is friendship with God like? How do we develop it? We're in the second half of the book of Exodus, and I'm starting, uh, we're going to study Exodus 32, verses 1 through 6 today. So let's read. Exodus 32, verse 1 says, When Moses failed to come back down the mountain right away. Pause. Moses went up to the peak of Mount Sinai. How long did he stay up there? 40 days. That's right. So when it says he failed to come back right away, that's accurate. Their expectation was he's going to come back right away. You can get up to the top of Mount Sinai and back in the same day. And that's what they thought. So Moses went up. I'm going to meet with God. And they're like, all right, whatever. And he goes, and he doesn't come back that day. And the next day they anticipate his return. He didn't come back. The day after that, he didn't come back then. The day after that, he still didn't come back. The day after that, you can imagine that when you're waiting, thinking it's going to be a short trip, 40 days, you're like, this is ridiculous absolutely ridiculous. Look what they say. When Moses failed to come back to the mountain right away, the people went to Aaron, his brother. Look, they said, make us some gods who can lead us. This man Moses, who brought us here from Egypt, he's disappeared. We don't know what has happened to him. You know, maybe they thought that he had died. You know, he was 80 years old, and maybe they thought, uh, you know, exposure to the elements up there, he's just dead. Or maybe they thought he split, and it's some cruel, practical joke. He just left them. But they've concluded he's gone. And what are we going to do now? And they are so mad at Moses, but I would add, they are so mad at the God of Moses. And you say, how do you know they're disappointed with God, too? Well, look what they tell Aaron. New God, make us a new God. These people are profoundly disappointed with God. The title of my message is Disappointment with God. If you want a relationship with God, something you need to know, you will be tempted to be disappointed with God. He will not meet your expectations. You know, people come to to the Lord with sky-high expectations. This is going to be awesome. Jeff said that it's the apex. It's the summit of life. It's life at its best. And then we get into this relationship with God, and there are wonderful parts of it, but then things don't work out. God, look at my job. This is the kind of job you give me? It was supposed to soar, and my career is stalling. Lord, look at my marriage. You know, I prayed for this passionate, romantic marriage, and blah, God. Look at my kids. I mean, God, everybody else has got a perfect family, and these are the kids you give me? What's up with that, you know? 
Look at my health. Look at my loss. You know, there are so many ways that we look at various things in life, and we, life is tough, and there are major problems for all of us. And inevitably, we are tempted to be disappointed with God. And when you're disappointed with God, that is a dangerous place, precarious moment where you can turn your back on God just like the Israelites did. What did they say? They said, you know what? Make us a new God. They rebelled. And so many people throughout history have been frustrated with God, disappointed with him, and turned their back on him as a result. Let's read on. Verse 2 says this. Aaron, you know, Moses' brother, people are pressing in on him saying, we want an idol. And he gives in. Aaron said, all right, all right, all right, all right. Tell your wives, your sons and your daughters to take off their gold earrings and bring them to me. All the people obeyed Aaron, and they brought him their gold earrings. And then Aaron took the gold, melted it down, and molded it and tooled it into the shape of a calf, a, a young cow, a gold cow. The people exclaimed, verse 4, Oh, Israel, these are the gods who brought you out of Egypt. Aaron starts to panic. He's like, oh, no, they're now worshiping uh, this gold cow and giving the gold cow credit for their escape out of slavery in Egypt. When Aaron saw how excited the people were about the idol, he built an altar in front of it, in front of the calf, and he announced, tomorrow there's going to be a festival to the Lord, to Yahweh. Aaron is like, okay, I gave in with you guys wanting a statue, and I got you your statue, but come on, let's worship the one true God, Yahweh. The festival in front of our new statue is going to be to God. He's trying to keep them a little bit attached to the Lord. Verse 6, so the people got up early the next morning to sacrifice burnt offerings. I guess that's biblical. And peace offerings. That's also biblical. Uh Uh-oh, look at this. After this, they celebrated with feasting and drinking and indulged themselves in pagan revelry. Pagan revel. What is revelry? Well, the Hebrew word translated revelry is sockic, and it means a party. And you said, oh, they had a church potluck. No. (laughs) Revelry is not a good church potluck. Revelry... The word that's translated there means a drunken bash. And the drinking is already evident in that passage, but intoxication is the fuel for this kind of party. And it's also uh, uh, frequently uh, sexually charged. It is uh, dancing and not square dancing. It is sexually overt dancing. And it is wild, as wild as a party can be. When Moses comes down from the mountain, he hears the music, he sees people screaming, and and Moses says they are going wild. Uh, Verse 25, I won't read it, but I'll just bring out this word. Moses says they're out of control. When he says out of control, the word he uses is paru, which means to throw off your inhibitions, quite literally, to throw off your clothing. And that's why the old King James translates verse 25 saying that they were running around naked because they are just, 
in drunkenness, going absolutely crazy. And this is, this is crazy. And people say, what is going on with the people of God? Why? Where did they go wrong? How could th- these people demand a gold idol of a calf and then in front of this idol start throwing a party of this sort? What? Where? Did this come from? And interestingly enough, modern archaeology helps us understand why the Israelites are doing this. Remember King Tut in his tomb that they discovered? They, they found many things. Here's a picture of one thing they found. This is a, a golden cow's head out of King Tut's tomb. King Tut, if dating experts are right, was a contemporary of Moses. So the Israelites would have seen this very statue, possibly. And the golden cow goddess was named Hathor. This is Hathor. She was the most popular goddess in all of ancient Egypt. Why? Because she was the goddess of parties. More parties were thrown in honor of the gold cow goddess than any other goddess. In fact, there's an ancient hymn to Hathor that's been discovered, and her titles are in that hymn, It says of Hathor, you are the mistress of jubilation. Jubilation is parties. You are the queen of dance, the mistress of music, the lady of sexual offerings, the mistress of intoxication without end. Wow. And interestingly enough, just yesterday, I stumbled upon an article about the archaeology today This is written by Alan Boyd, who's the science editor at MSNBC. And he wrote an article called Sex and Booze Figured in Egyptian Rites. The article begins, Today, it sounds like a spring break splurge on the order of girls gone wild. Drink huge quantities of beer, get wasted, indulge in gratuitous sex, and pass out. Uh, But back in 1470 B.C., this was precisely the agenda for one of ancient Egypt's most raucous festival. And then he clarifies, it was the festival dedicated to Hathor. He continues, Archaeologists have found evidence among the ruins at the Temple of Luxor in Egypt that these festivals featured sex drugs, and the ancient equivalent of rock and roll. Goes on to describe pictures of these parties that were found on the walls of this temple of naked people wildly dancing and uh, carrying grapes as a sign of their intoxication and vivid descriptions in print of what these parties were like. And so when we look at why a, a golden cow and why a party like that, Where did these people grow up? In Egypt. This is what they saw all the time growing up. And here's what's interesting. Most likely in their days of slavery, they they abstained from, probably weren't invited to participate, but they stayed away from it. But now in this moment when they are disappointed with God, they give in to the way, the lifestyle of the culture around them. And folks, that's what happens with us. We will say, Lord, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to be devoted to you. I'm going to stay away from worldly ways. And then God lets us down. And life isn't what we thought. 
And there is such an immense temptation. I think Satan steps in and fills our mind with these lies. God doesn't care about you. God's abandoned you. Have some fun. You deserve it. And so many people fall to temptation. When everything's good, they're staying close to the Lord. But when things start to crumble, that is a season, a moment when you can backslide, if not full-out rebel. You know, I saw it in a friend of mine, godly woman. This just broke my wife and I's heart. Godly woman who loved Jesus, actually sang songs in her church, proclaiming her love and their love for the Lord. And she had a dream, and that was that God would bless her with a Christian husband. You know, she was a romantic, and she could imagine what her wedding would be like, the fairy tale of this beautiful uh, marriage. And she prayed for a Christian husband, a godly man. And the years passed, and she didn't find the guy. God didn't provide the guy. Years, her 20s passed. She got to the age of 35. She had been saving herself. She had been abstaining sexually, remaining a virgin to her wedding so she could give herself to her husband only. And, and she's like, what am I saving myself for? This is ridiculous. I'm 35. And she, in her bitterness towards God, said, forget it. And she took a walk on the wild side, said goodbye to her Christian church family, and found some new friends who lived a different way. Very dangerous people who were involved in a very dangerous way of life. And she dove in headfirst and found her heart ripped out. Found much pain and an unwanted pregnancy. And when you see someone disappointed with God and get to the end and just like, forget it. It breaks your heart. Now you say, I would never go off on the wild side like that. Maybe you're right. Maybe the Hathor-type parties are not your issue. But every one of us is in danger of a subtle drift of the heart away from full devotion to God when we are disappointed by him. Do you know that? When, when you know, you're just gung-ho in love for Jesus and he is your everything, your first thought, your last thought, your obsession, and then hardship comes or disappointment comes, And it's so easy for Satan to get in and just say, come on, chill. It's not all it was cracked up to be. He's not all it was cracked up to be. And sometimes you don't even realize it's happening, but that fire that once burned dies down. And that devotion that characterizes you shrivels up. And you backslide spiritual. Sometimes it's so subtle that you don't even realize it until you're quite a ways away from the Lord and you go, wow, look what's happened to my heart. Folks, spiritual disappointment with God is a precarious, dangerous moment where the evil one can discourage us and cause us to drift. And what's so unfortunate is that it's all based on a misunderstanding. Even the the Israelites turning to Hathor in this wild ways because God's abandoned them. Has God abandoned them? No. They look at the 40 days that Moses has gone on Mount Sinai and they interpret that to mean God doesn't care, which isn't true. They interpret that to mean that they're alone, that God has left them. That isn't true. They look at 40 days of Moses being gone as a sign that God's not there. Oddly enough, if they had understood the scriptural precedent, 40 is actually a number in scripture that speaks of God's involvement. 
Did you ever notice how often the number 40 comes up in Scripture, specifically addressing hardship? The Bible seems to indicate that God uses the number 40 to communicate that he is limiting the duration of our trial, our difficulty, to 40. Let me, get, let me just show you some examples. Uh, Noah, how many days did it rain when the great floods came, forcing the family into the ark? It rained for 40 days. How about Moses? Moses killed an Egyptian, and before the whole Sinai bit, he was forced into 40 years of exile as an outlaw, running in Moab, Midian. Israel, after Sinai, they are going to wander for 40 years in the desert because of their lack of faith. They're going to blow it, and God's going to punish them by saying, in the desert for 40 years of hardship. The army of Israel was taunted by this Philistine giant named Goliath for 40 days. He mocked them and insulted their God. Jesus, our Savior, was tempted and was in the deserts fasting without water and food for 40 days. The theme again and again is that 40 marks a season of hardship but one that is divinely limited in its duration to just that amount. It speaks that God is in control. He is sovereign, even though it feels like he's 1,000 miles away. He's there. He's in charge. He's wanting to use the hardship to develop character in us. You know, the Bible says God can bring good out of that bad. God's in control, and God says, I'm telling you, I'm going to end this. It will not last forever. All suffering is temporary. It may end most times in this life at some point, but if not, it will end in heaven. But God wants us to know that it's all temporary. And uh, the number 40 speaks loudly that God is in it, though invisible, and that if we will walk with him through it, we will see light at the end of the tunnel and blessing at the end of the tunnel. In fact, look at this. Remember Noah, after 40 days or all that flood, came the rainbow and God's great promise to Noah, I'm going to start life on earth over through you. And what about at the end of the 40 years of Moses being uh, a fugitive? He was then brought in as the leader who delivered the Israelites out of their slavery into freedom. And what about after the 40 years of wandering in the desert? They entered the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey, the land of Canaan to become finally the nation in a home that they had dreamed of. And what about the army being taunted by uh, Goliath for 40 days? What came at the end of that? The king of glory. This King David was the most wonderful king in Israel's history, and he was brought onto the scene and defeated Goliath with one stone and crushed the Philistines as a result. And what about Jesus? After 40 days of fasting, he was tempted by Satan, the king of darkness. And Jesus went toe-to-toe, and Jesus was victorious. Great victory over the enemy was the result. And so this is life. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. But when the trouble comes, it's dark. And it will feel like God's not there. But that's not the case. God is there. He is in control. And if you'll hang in there with them, this too will 
end and glorious blessing is on the other side. But it's tough to hang tight. Folks, when we're in the darkness, I heard it said that you cannot doubt in the darkness what you've seen in the light. And that is in the light you've seen God is good and he is real and he loves us. And when you go through the darkness and it's tempting to doubt that, hold tight. You know, my wife and I had our own season of darkness. I've shared with you before, we went through infertility. Jen and I, when we got married, we couldn't wait to be parents. You know, she was an elementary school teacher and I was a youth pastor. So both of our careers centered around young people and we just, right away, we wanted to be parents. And if you've gone through infertility, you know how painful it is. You have this dream of holding that baby and that dream is denied you. And every month, your, your hopes are raised and you think, oh, this may be it. We're a day late, we're a day late, and then boom. And it seems like everybody around you is getting pregnant. Even those who don't want to be pregnant are pregnant. And you find yourself going, why not us, Lord? And uh, we went to fertility doctors, and none of the treatment worked for us. And confession time, Jen and I had some very dark nights of the soul, where some thoughts from the evil one had their way in our minds. Thoughts like, God's not nearly as concerned about you as you thought he was. God doesn't love you. God's not impressed with you. He doesn't even think you're ready to be parents. And we try to shake off those thoughts, but man, they're loud when you're going through a hard time. And my wife and I thankfully had each other, and we many times with tears running down our faces would hold each other's hands and say, we will not turn our back on God. We know he loves us. We know he is there. We don't understand why this is happening. This is not the way we had planned it, but we must stick with him. He is good. And by God's grace, though Jen and I were, could have gone down a very bad spiral, we hung through, and there was light at the end of our tunnel. It was or not, you know about our light. Uh, we have a, our daughter, Jora, who was bi- biological. The doctor says, you cannot get pregnant. And God said, oh, yeah. And the Lord brought a miracle pregnancy in Jora. And then we had never planned on adopting, and God brought two. If you ever think about adopting, I'm sorry, but we already adopted the two greatest kids that were ever available, <laughs> and they're in our family. And I I just, I praise God. And at this point, it makes so much sense. But it didn't make sense then. That's how suffering is. Very confusing when you're in the midst of it. Remember that gal who uh, went off the wild side and started partying with the wrong group that I mentioned who used to sing on stage at church? I, I can give you a little more of her story. It has a happy ending. In her deep pain, she realized the foolish, the folly of her ways, and she repented. She came back to to the Lord. She came back to Christian fellowship and to her church, and she was forgiven and restored. She had this unwanted pregnancy, and she felt God leading her to give up that son to adoption. Uh, And then as she continued to walk with the Lord, uh, recently God blessed her with a husband the husband she's always dreamed of. She was uh, 40 years old when she got married, but she is enjoying a glorious, 
Christian marriage now. And I tell the, the story of Jen and I and her story, and it makes people wonder, you know, she gave up a kid for adoption. You adopted a kid. Is there any way? You're pretty smart. Uh, that, that little boy who was given up for adoption is our son, Jake. And the, the chaos in our lives and the chaos in her lives and the problems, were, God has a glorious way of working it all out and showing his goodness to those who hang in there and cling to him. You know, last week, uh, there's, there's a, a gal in our church named uh, Casey Patton who sang the song Oceans right here on the stage. Remember that? She sang Oceans, and she ministered to me so powerfully with her beautiful voice and her great passion. And I, I saw her love for God on display, and I just assumed she's always loved God, and it's always been sweet for her. I was naive to what she had been through, but come to find out, she's gone through her valley of darkness as well. And I wanted to end by listening to Casey Patton tell her story. Hi, my name is Casey Patton. I've been a member of the Compass Church for eight years at the Hobson campus. The summer before my junior year of high school, I was diagnosed with a brain tumor. I found myself in brain surgery and then into chemotherapy um, for about a year and a half. And those were some of the most challenging moments of my life. And even more so because I felt completely separated from God. I felt that there were moments where I would, I would just scream for God, um, plead for his, for his mercy, for, for um, an ending to the pain, um, the pain, the nausea, every day um, and I just I, I heard nothing, I felt nothing I felt so far from God, I, I just stopped talking to God altogether because I, I felt no relief from his presence, I felt no comfort from his words, I would say I felt let down I, I felt abandoned um, that my heavenly father would let you know, would let his one of his daughters go through this. It wasn't until a later date that I started to really understand um, who Jesus was and how much he loved me. After I got myself back on my feet a little bit, um, I decided that I wanted to go into nursing um, because I wanted to help kids who had been through what I had been through. Um, things were finally starting to settle in place a little bit, parents came down to school one day, knocked on my front door to talk to me in person. I heard three words that again changed my life and they were, you have relapsed. My initial thought was, really, God? Like, again, didn't, didn't we just go through all of this? I'm back on my own two feet. This is over. The story's over, right? Like, done. Um, but it wasn't. There were couple more things that he needed to teach me that he needed to show me. I dropped out of school, um, left behind my family, my friends, and me and my mom, just the two of us, moved to Boston to, um, for I think it was 10 weeks to start this proton radiation every day. And I think it was while I was there, I really, really finally accepted Christ into my life. I finally understood 
what it meant that when I was made weaker, God was made stronger. And and that though my flesh fails me every single day, um, the sovereign Lord of my life and of our lives um, will never will never fail me. I now battle daily the consequences and side effects of chemo and radiation. And there are still times when I feel like I want to quit. But next year, this time next year, I will officially be in remission. And I, I can't wait for that moment. Um, should that be God's will for me, I will celebrate like I've never celebrated before. Um, and But even if that's not his will for me, um, whatever I endure or wherever I'm called to go, it's all it's all a part of his bigger plan for my life. Because of his unending grace, I can live freely now, um, regardless of my circumstances, regardless of my health. And for the rest of my life, I will be lifting my hands up so that everyone knows how awesome my God is.